Welcome back to the Missing Moramari podcast. I'm Tim, here with Lance. Lance, today, for this episode, we have some more stuff recorded from CrimeCon a few weeks ago. CrimeCon is just the the well of material. The bulk of what we play here is going to be from you, me, and James Renner talking on the live panel during the Sunday presentation that we did, which includes the Oxygen trailer. And the live panel was really intimidating, I think, right? I mean, we can say that. that walking We were terrified. Into, yeah, we were terrified. We had seen uh, a couple other panel uh, discussions, and this is a ballroom that holds, you know, 300 people, all the chairs. More are- than that. Yeah. Much more than that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it was it was the first time that we had ever done anything like that. And uh, I was doing some sort of um, like yoga in the back to try to release the the anxious uh, tension that was going on in my body. But um, I think it all went well. We learned what we what what we should do differently next time. And, and it was it was very well received. Yeah, I, it was as far as we know. Um, and so we will end up having to chop a little bit up and out of it. Um Hopefully you can understand why that there were some issues with it, but also some things that we couldn't really play on the podcast yet um, pertaining to the Oxygen show. And uh, before we play the, the panel, we're going to play a quick interview with Billy Jensen, who wrote the phenomenal Boston Magazine article, Will the Internet Find Maura Murray? That was written back in 2014. And so that was our first time meeting him. We had spoken to him a couple of years ago, and he came up and uh, introduced himself, and uh, we got a quick a quick bite, and we're going to have him on this show uh, in the future. Yeah, a really cool guy. has a tattoo of a magnifying glass on his forearm, which, um, which I thought was pretty cool. And uh, writing that article in 2014, he really was one of the first mainstream journalists to put something like that in print about the internet actually doing something productive and helping uh, cold cases. I don't know if he thought at the time that he was writing it, that he would be in Indianapolis at crime con that a crime con would even exist, but I'm sure, uh, I'm sure he had a good time there and I'm sure he thought that that was a very, uh, a very resourceful and productive experience as well. And finally, We're going to talk a little bit about The Oxygen Show during this presentation and during this episode, but just know that we can't talk that much about it right now, but you really need to trust us when we say this investigation is the best thing that we could have done for the case. Whatever strings we could pull to make this show happen, we tried to pull them because we knew this investigation was going to be top-notch, and it's for the case. It's not for TV drama. It's for the case. Right. And that brings me to the panel when we started speaking about uh, Moore Murray's disappearance. And then we backtracked a little bit and said, how many people don't know about this? And more people than I expected raised their hands. And that goes into why the show is being produced there. You might think as somebody who looks into true crime and particularly this case, that it's so widespread so many people know about it. There's a huge amount of people who don't know about it. And this this show has a legitimate investigation behind it. And it's being produced with a relationship to law enforcement. If this show wasn't going to happen, we would be looking at year 14, year 15, year 20, year 25, until people forgot about it. 
the worst thing that could happen with this is we go back to the tree and we go back to the VFW or the lodge down the street and we hang out with John Smith and he talks about how he's been looking at this case for 18 years. And then the next year we talk about how he's been looking into it for 20 years, 21 years. That This is just escalated. It has propelled the investigation forward by leaps and bounds, by years. Thank you very much for listening and please follow us on social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and we'll be back in a couple of weeks. Okay, my name is Billy Jensen. I'm a investigative reporter. I'm in a television show called Crime Watch Daily. I also do a lot of my other stuff, and I'm a writer. And I met you guys uh, after I wrote the story on Maura Murray for Boston Magazine. That was three years ago, four years ago, something along those lines, yeah. And uh, being sucked into that vortex of Maura Murray was, uh, it's still there. It's still, t- you know, today. I'm looking forward to your guys' panel. you got James right here. Was it, when, when you saw where you were sitting, were you surprised that you were sitting right next to James Renner? Uh, no, actually, we were the first table here. Okay. And then James showed up a little later on. He's like, do you mind if I put my table right there? Okay. So yeah. if anybody's trolling anybody, it's James is trolling you guys. That's absolutely <laughs> true. Yeah. So uh, quick question about the, the uh, Boston Magazine article. Yeah. Um, how long did you immerse yourself into that article? Because it was a really thorough article. Probably and about a year. Yeah, it was about a year. Um, I had known about the case. Uh, you know, this is before all the podcast explosions and everything. But I had known about the case. I had known about what was... Uh, I didn't know how many rabbit holes there were. I used to tell people that, you know, JFK assassination, which is how I started getting into this as, a, like, a 10-year-old kid... Yeah. That had so many rabbit holes because you've got like the magic bullet and the three tramps and the grassy knoll and all this. When you get into the Moore Murray case, you start getting into those rabbit holes like the rag in the tailpipe and the wine on the ceiling and, and um, all of you know, the bus, the, the, the A frame house and the school bus driver. And there are some people that can go down those rabbit holes and then never come back, you know. And uh, that was what fascinated me about this case was that there were, particularly online, there were a lot of people trying to solve it. Uh, you had a lot of creepy things that were going on online. Uh, you had a lot of proprietary people that were trying to trying to hold on to information. And and uh, at the end of the day, it was this, you know, it was a, a woman who was was obviously in some turmoil in her life and was trying to figure things out and was going up to a place that she felt sanctuary for. And we don't know what happened when she took that that wicked turn and uh, smashed into the into the snowbank. So. Uh, it was, just, you know, it's a classic mystery, and it's something that I wanted to dig deep into. And Foster Magazine gave me the opportunity to dig deep into it. On the, at the same time, bring in all the people that like James and all the people that are trying to solve it, and and talking to Fred and, and everybody, and really just, you know, and talking to Fred and seeing Fred have his daughter's life picked apart when we really don't know what happened, you know, and uh, it's it's still a fascinating case. What is it about uh, this case that you? Most, most cases kind of lose traction after 10 years, 11 years, 12 years. What do you think? This seems to be gaining traction nonstop and gaining momentum. What do you think it is about the case that, that keeps people digging, that, yeah. that aren't officially licensed to do so? I think it's, the, it's a combination of you guys. It's a combination of just um, the explosion of true crime. And people are out there, all right, well... I finished Making a Murder. I finished The Jinx. What am I going to get into now? I finished Serial. 
what is this? More Murray. And then they see it, uh, you know, they see it in the iTunes store or whatever, and then they start getting into it and into it. And there's so many pathways to go down. There's a lot of there's a lot of crimes that don't have a lot of red herrings. And red herrings is something that you traffic in in television. You traffic in it in, in what you guys do on podcasts. And this one has a lot of red herrings, but one of one of those is going to be the truth. But there's a hell of a lot of red herrings in this one. So there's a lot of talking points, and it's something that, at the end of the day, people want to sit around and talk about at their local pub. You think about it that way. So if there's a if there's a case that somebody would want to go to a bar and talk about for an hour, that's probably going to be something that's going to capture people's imagination. And uh, but at the end of the day, we still want to think about the victim, and this is a girl that is what I think is probably dead. And, uh, you know, but the idea, there's also, and, and I'll, I'll add on to that, there's also the idea, the possibility that she is alive, which makes it that much more fascinating because somebody could look into this thing for 15 years and then if she pops up, it's like, holy shit. Yep. Same way with the Lindbergh baby, you know. Yeah, yeah. Just wanted to say thank you to everybody for joining us coming to CrimeCon, the first CrimeCon 2017. Who's coming next year? Yeah, who's coming next year? Awesome. So the first thing we want to do is show a trailer for the new television show that's going to be on Oxygen. Uh, so check it out. How does a person disappear when there's three people watching? We don't know where she is, and we don't know where she was going. Where is Maura Murray? What happened to her? I think she was running from the men in her life. I'd like to think maybe she escaped. Why did she leave UMass? What was she doing on that road? I wish I could go back there. I can't. If we knew why she really left that night and where she was going, that could certainly answer the question about what happened to her. If she had gone up there just to kind of get away, she would have resurfaced. The most important thing that we got to look at, and that does not make any sense, is the Sheriff's Department report. This moment where apparently everybody turned around, she's gone. This is the first big mystery of the social media age. My name is Maggie Freeling. I'm an investigative journalist, and I just want to find the truth. You will become obsessed with this case. It's a quick sneak peek, but there's a lot of info in that trailer. We're really excited about it. It's going to be six episodes. And really, really honored to be uh, here to uh, officially announce that this is what has been going on for the past uh, almost, like, almost a year at this point um, with production and pre-production. Yeah. We, we, we had to, there's, there's still an open investigation, so... So we, we couldn't really talk too much about the show. So we're kind of, we're honored that this is the platform that we're able to announce the show. Yeah, we couldn't talk about the show at all until now. So it's been uh, been very exciting to uh, to come here and share this with you guys. Who wants to see it again? I think I, I think I want to see it again. There's a lot of information in here. Okay, let's run it back. How does a person disappear when there's three people watching? We don't know where she is, and we don't know where she was going. Where is Maura Murray? What happened to her? I think she was running from the men in her life. I'd like to think maybe she escaped. Why did she leave UMass? What was she doing on that road? I wish I could go back there. I can't. 
we knew why she really left that night where she was going, that could certainly answer the question about what happened to her. If she had gone up there just to kind of get away, she would have resurfaced. The most important thing that we got to look at, and that does not make any sense, is the Sheriff's Department report. This moment where apparently everybody turned around, she's gone. This is the first big mystery of the social media age. My name is Maggie Freeling. I'm an investigative journalist, and I just want to find the truth. You will become obsessed with this case. The first thing I want to talk about is that guy in the green sweater. Oh, the guy who was next to the guy who uh, said that really insightful thing. Uh, I didn't even him. notice that guy. No, no, that guy. They, no. they actually did a shot on him and the other guy, and then they went closer to the guy who said that. No, I don't even really think he was It looked like shot. he'd just done like 100 push-ups. Huh. No. Yeah. No, no. That was, I mean, we could play it again, just freeze frame on that guy. I was talking about the guy with the Kennedy hair. Oh, the guy with the Kennedy hair, yeah. I was, I was the so, guy with the Kennedy eloquence. So this is a legitimate investigation, this this show. It's, uh, it's, it's no joke. It's... We, we were so supportive of this because it's so much more than we ever could have done just ourselves. Um, you may be wondering who Maggie Freeling is. She's a, an investigative reporter uh, who works with NPR. In addition to her investigating this case, there is a former U.S. Marshal who is in the trailer. His name's Art, and he is a badass. Yeah, Art's a good guy, and Art is able to work with local law enforcement, state law enforcement, to uh, establish the relationship that has started to feed uh, the, their investigation, the production company's investigation. Their law enforcement is now starting to, to feed bits of information that haven't been out there before to Art. Because he's, he's part of law enforcement, they respect him, and that, that relationship has, uh, has begun. Has anyone seen the Alcatraz show, Search for the Truth, that was on History Channel a couple years ago? Um, that guy, Art Roderick, was in that, and he's uh, part of the same production company, and uh, they were able to exhume a body and test it for DNA. So uh, it was the, that was really appealing to us. And I know it's exciting to see the trailer and to see um, all of this work come together, but one thing that we want to make sure everybody knows is it's extremely... I was at breakfast this morning, I was trying to think of another word for bizarre or surreal, but it, I mean, it's extremely surreal to be sitting here right now, and you shouldn't like, lose sight of the fact that Moore is a person with a family, and they want to find out what's going on. And too often we get, I guess, caught up in the entertainment of it. So just keep that in mind, that there is a missing person there, and it really shouldn't be entertainment. We, sometimes we can lose perspective. We're sitting up here, you know, we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the decisions that Maura Murray made before she left back in 2004. So it is a, a really strange thing. Right, and I think that's a good segue into James because if it wasn't for James's blog and however, whatever information comes of that, nothing would have, that, that was the genesis of, of everything that's, that's happening right now with Maura Murray. It, it's very odd when you think about it like that. Um, you know, I, I've gotten to be friends with these guys, Tim and Lance, and, and although they, they, they hold me to the fire sometimes on the podcasts, uh, we, can, we can set that aside and have a good time, um, but I wouldn't even know these guys if Mora hadn't gotten into a car and driven into the White Mountains um, in 2004. Um, and this goes back to my first book on the Amy Mihalovic case, and uh, this young girl in Bay Village, Ohio, who was abducted and murdered in 1989, and I was the same age as her, and it was that moment in my life that kind of changed it, the course of what I did. I don't know that I'd even be a journalist if Amy Mahalovic 
wasn't abducted in the ED9. So it's odd how these, these tragic circumstances can um, have these ripple effects that impact the lives of people that aren't even close to, uh, to the family and the core of these mysteries. And to all of you, right? I mean, yeah. all of you who came out and, and you support the show and you support the case, just know you're supporting the investigation. It's actually making a difference. Oxygen and, never would have been interested in this show if there weren't as many listeners and if there weren't as many viewers of the blog. And so it is really because of you guys out there that this show is happening, that this new investigation is launched. And we're very confident that after these six episodes air that there's going to be more information out about this case than ever before. We don't even know what they've done on the show. They won't, they won't tell us everything. We, you know, we know what we shot with them. Other than that, that's about it. We do know there's going to be some new information, which, you know, as, as the person who's run the blog on this case since like 2011, the fact that there's new information coming in the fall just kind of blows my mind because we felt, I felt that we reached a point where there's just nothing else coming in. But um, from what we've heard, there is, there is new info coming down the pike. There is, there is an element of law enforcement that appreciates what you guys do, that appreci appreciates the crowdsourcing of information. Um, there's always going to be bad with it. There's always going to be good and bad with everything. But just this right here is, is such proof of, of the positive effect that, that you guys can have. How many people here are not familiar with the Maura Murray case at all? Wow. Okay. Um, it's, it's interesting. This, this case, it's the first... Uh, major mystery of the social media age. Uh, the week that Moore disappeared was the week that Facebook launched. A lot of people don't see that, realize that connection there. But uh, I, I guess that since there's so many people here, just a real quick rundown of what happened. Um, in uh, what was it, February 8th? February 9th. Um, Moore Murray is a um, student at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. And she emails her professors and says there's been a death in the family. Correction. <laughs> it was a family emergency. <laughs> Have you seen the email? Just saying, death is pretty specific. <laughs> Have you seen the email? Go I on, mean, though. Do we know for sure? Okay, so no either a, there's been a family emergency or a death in the family, depending on where you're getting your info. Um, and uh, which, either case, was probably a lie. Um, she gets into a car... Uh, takes money out of the bank, drives north into the mountains of uh, New Hampshire. I'm just, uh, this is a, a general overview. We can get into the minutia soon. Um, 32 minutes. <clears throat> and uh, about 7.30 that night, her car impacts a snowbank on Route 112 in uh, New Hampshire. And... Uh, sometime between the time of that accident, and there were a number of houses there nearby that heard the accident, they called, a couple of people called police. Somewhere in between three minutes to seven minutes, possibly longer, uh, but not much, uh, she disappears never to be seen again. Moore was, at the beginning, made out to be an all-American girl. Um, if anybody's seen the special on her on ID Discovery or 2020, um, you get the sense that she was almost perfect to a fault. When I started writing the book in 2011, I went in with that idea, and I came out with a very different picture of Mora. Once you start peeling back the layers, you find, just like everybody else, um, everybody involved has skeletons in their closet. And uh, 
uh, maybe motive to run away. I just want to talk about Art Roderick a little bit, the U.S. Marshal, who uh, who is working on this show, and he's really uh, one of the heads of the new investigation. But in addition to him, it's Maggie, but it's also the executive producers of the show, who are essentially investigators, which is kind of an interesting job. You're, you're a producer, and you're also an investigator. We, we tell them what we think, and they decide what to follow. I mean, they, they really follow everything. Uh, so it's it's pretty intense. Art Roderick, uh, last time we were up in New Hampshire with, with these guys, there was a tick that was on Maggie, and uh, it, it wasn't attached. In the, in the hotel room. In the hotel room. Let me just explain a little bit about Art, because Art put, put a glass over the tick, and we were just looking at the tick for like 10, 15 minutes. Art identified which tick it was on a tick website, and then we were talking about, well, what do we do with it? And it was like, do we flush it down the toilet? Do we, do we throw it off the balcony? And Art was like, let's drown it in vodka. <laughs> so we actually have uh, video footage of this, uh, and we'll play it right now. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> and there's no, there's no PETA people in the audience, right? <laughs> I don't think anyone likes tits. No one likes tits. Yeah. Uh, we do actually have video footage of it, but not here uh, today. But uh, it, the, the tick lasted like at least a half an hour in the vodka. It was walking around at the bottom of the glass. We went for dinner and came back and it was dead, so I was just happy. Or it was faking dead. Yeah. But that's the kind of person who is looking for answers in this case. So you can feel comfortable in knowing that this guy is going to be very thorough. <laughs> All right, well, I was actually pretty surprised about how many people didn't know about the case, and I think that's something that's a, a sort of an oversight on my end, is I kind of assume everybody knows about the case. Because we get it is stuck in an echo chamber where we think just because we know every single detail in this thing that everybody else does too. How do they know that it, that it was Mara who drove the car? We have Butch Atwood who is the bus driver who pulled over when uh, the accident happened. He was pretty, pretty much immediately behind her and uh, spoke to her when he was shown a picture and was asked if this is the person. At first he said, no, that doesn't look like her, but they probably showed the picture of her that when you go on the, you know, the all-American girl picture, she's got dimples, she's smiling, her hair's done. And when you see somebody getting into an accident and cold and shivering, so he did say, no, 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 that, that was her. She was, she was shivering and cold. Um, and, and that is the last known sighting. Yeah, but it, it is a good question because we don't know for a fact that right. it was her there. there. There are some things that could have happened between that ATM and Route 112. But. And there are friends and relatives that look uh, enough like Maura Murray that they might pass for her in that situation. But don't let your imagination go nuts with that. <laughs> it was almost definitely Maura. I agree. I agree. It was 99.9% it was Maura. That accident happened on probably the most populated stretch of that road. If you were going to abandon your car and, and say run away and leave your car there, you wouldn't have done it there in front of a few houses. They, they, within a few mile vicinity, there are really desolate roads that you easily could have dropped your car there if, if that was what you were doing. So I think her accident was absolutely legitimate. Yeah. I'm wondering about how the three of you, how your theories differ, if at all, about where she is or what happened. What was the question? How we differ in 16 minutes. <laughs> How our theories differ. 
Yeah, I think James can start with this one. Have a good night. <laughs> um, a lot of people think that I'm convinced she's uh, happy and alive in Canada and living under the radar. That's not entirely true. Um, I spent uh, several years researching this case uh, for a book called True Crime Addict that came out last year. And uh, what I've come to in my heart is I'm 100% sure of one thing, and that's that Moore Murray was not traveling alone that night, that there was this tandem driver fault, uh, uh, in another vehicle ahead of her. The accident happened, the tandem driver turned around, picked her up, and they continued on, probably afraid that, that the police would be called to the accident, and they were. Um, and then the question becomes, what happens after that? And there's two possible explanations. The tandem driver helped her on, and she went on and, and lived a life, and is still living that life. Or two, um, that person's responsible for her murder. And I think Tim and I, and I'm gonna, we'll wrap this up quick, because uh, we have maybe some special stuff that we can show you guys, but um, Tim and I have made it a point to not really uh, have our own theories. Um, said it yesterday during the live podcast that we kind of look at that, that area where she went missing the time, uh, the location, and kind of strip away moving, moving outward from that and kind of taking things at face value. But um, Yeah, we, we're not sold on any theory. We're not sold on James's theory, but we're not sold on any theory either. Not sold on James's theory. <laughs> Have there been any more alleged sightings of her? There's been sightings, but Tim and I were sitting at a bar once, and we looked across the bar, and I said, if I took a picture of that woman over there across the bar and put it on social media and said that I saw Mora, it would, it would take off. It would be a firestorm. Don't and, get any ideas. <laughs> um, I, I certainly hope that one of these sightings pans out. There, there were mysterious ones, and you have to remember the time of, of the, where the world was. It was 2004, 2005, 2006. Not today, where there was, you know, I mean, if it had happened today, I, I don't know, that would, do you think it would have been solved if it happened today? Because of just the, the frenzy of social media. Um, so you'd hear stories about some, some girl who looked like her in a gas station mouthing the words, help me, to the gas station attendant. And, and you kind of, you do have to look into them, but there's, there's also the, the time for the, the quick uh, Swansea story. Oh, yeah, go for it. Yeah, there's, there's also stories about people that get so obsessed with this case that they contact us and they say, um, I think I saw Mora at a, uh, at a gas station right outside of Keene, New Hampshire, in a small town, but I can't tell you what town it is. And I'm, I grew up in the area, and, and so it'd be like, how, how, how far away? Like 20 minutes away. I said, Swansea? He goes, yeah, yeah, the Swansea. So he, he tells us a story about how he goes in, and, and he's been looking into the case, and this is a... And he, and he sees this woman working, and he, and he says, do you know this person? He shows a picture of, of Mora, and she's like, no. And he goes, you're not Mora? She's like, no, my name's not Mora. And goes back in his car, and then he contacts us, and, and he says, yeah, I've been going there. And now she, like, just something suspicious. She, like, hides in the back when I go in. And I'm like, dude, you're, you're stalking her. Like, what? Yeah, keeps going back to keeps that gas back. station. And then he's like, I don't think she works there anymore. I think she quit. Like, good job. Good job. She had a job and now she doesn't. Poor girl. So, yeah, I mean, there, there are sightings and then there's... Uh, and everyone remembers how she looks in those pictures. It was 13 years ago. So people are looking at women who are 21 years old and saying, I think that's more. Like, so she disappeared and in age. Cool. Right. 
this this case and Mora's story gets stuck in people's heads to the point where I think they they see her when she's not there. Sometimes you know they're thinking about her when they're driving. We we talked to several people uh, this weekend who said that uh, to us that they're they're always thinking about Mora. And I think that's probably what happened in a lot of these situations where they see a brunette woman and they think it looks like her, it could be her, and it's almost definitely not, but my God, I, I, hope, I hope to God she is out there. I hope to God one of these is real. I mean, when we went to Canada with James, we had moments where the, you know, we'd go into a bar and the bartender would say, oh yeah, that's Mary. She started working here two weeks ago. And or we, we had the guy who, we found on the street who looked at her and you, you like had that look of recognition and he says yeah I know where she is and we're like where and he says the morgue and then he walks and away then he walks off and we, we're looking at each other and we're like what? <laughs> what just happened yeah and then we, we do follow up with him I've been watching that footage actually go through some of that Canada footage and it's pretty interesting what else he has to say there I guess this question is uh, really for James, but do you think that Billy, her boyfriend, ex-boyfriend, however you want to put it, do you think that there is any possibility that he could have been that tandem driver? That's a very good question. Um, I think Bill was one of the um, reasons that she was trying to leave her life. Um, one of the men she was trying to get away from. Uh, one thing that I learned about Bill, and this is, I learned about this just a couple weeks before the book um, was due to the printers, and we had to rush everything and get it in there. Um, in 2000, this is, uh, Bill Roush was uh, Maura Murray's boyfriend at the time of the disappearance. He was in Fort Sill, and that's a long drive to New Hampshire if he had anything to do with it. Um, and uh, he, it seems as though he was at Fort Sill and in the field. But what I learned at the last minute was that in 2011, Bill was working at an office in D.C., and uh, there was a woman there who alleged that he sexually assaulted her in the office of the, uh, the president of their company after hours. And there are a number of other women he worked with that backed that up, and he ended up losing his job over it. It makes you wonder, if he was doing this in 2011, what was he doing in 2004, and was that motive for Mora to leave? For instance, was she pregnant with his child? That's a good motive to leave and to remain hidden. Mora wasn't pregnant, let's do another question. <laughs> do you know if a age progression photo has been released to the public, or will it be during this new program? Yeah, we, we, do, we do know that they have done an age progression uh, on the show. We haven't seen it, um, but yeah, that is something that will be on the show, I'm sure. It's a good question. This is kind of getting deep into the weeds, and I think I know where James stands on this, so I'd like to hear, Lance and Tim, your opinion on James Smith, Witness A, and the police conspiracy theory. John Smith and uh, Witness A, who, uh, who claims that she saw Mora's car that night, um, and SUV, police SUV 001 parked nose to nose with Mora's car, um, but she doesn't claim to have seen anyone in either car. Right, Witness A's story is she left her job and she has a, has a habit, she, she works um, as a uh, recovery counselor for uh, drug addicts and 
she had a seven o'clock appointment and when she doesn't have her appointment showing up, she waits 15 minutes and if they're not there, she'll leave. So she left probably around 7.15. Uh, the route that she took to where Moore's car was found, um, the timing works out uh, for, for her to get to that point. Same that route time. she takes home from work every day. She calls her dad um, at a certain point past that. And so we actually saw her phone records and uh, she did make that typical call um, at, at Beaver Pond when, when there's finally service again. So the timing pretty much works where that would that, that could have been possible. Um, however, as we've learned, and uh, witness eyewitness testimony is not always, well, actually, a lot of times it's, it's incorrect. Right, it's typically unreliable, especially when the party waits a long time. However, she, she reported this in pretty much immediately. She reported it in March, pretty much immediately. Yeah. After it was fresh in her mind. She had seen a police vehicle pass her once on one road, probably, um, kind of hooked around and got back on the main road, and when she was about to get on the main road onto 112, he passed again. And that's what stood out in her head. And she, she can remember the details of the, of the police lights going up and down the hill. And then when she passed by the scene, she saw the SUV there with a car. Now, maybe she confused the night, and there was another, like, maybe small accident there, or maybe somebody else was pulled over, but we met her. She's a very, very genuine person. And she said she even pulled to the side of the road, wondering, should I stop and see if they need a hand? And then thought, well, there's a police officer there. I, I shouldn't need to go back and, and help. Um, as far as John Smith's theories. Yeah. Um, well, I think this, this theory wouldn't have been, this eyewitness would not have been as interesting to us if it, if it just came about uh, in the past couple of years. But the fact that it was uh, sent to the Marty family and she is uh, about as sweet and genuine as a person as uh, you can imagine. For those unfamiliar with the case, real quick, uh, the reason they're talking about this is is this leads into the idea of this vast police conspiracy, uh, the it, police it, being involved in. It in really what doesn't lead in into the idea of a vast. It, it, it's a it's a it's a it's a, a an account that a witness had. I don't know if we we believe it or you know I I, I would say I don't know I I don't I don't think we necessarily believe it or not believe it. I know the the woman is very credible um, and. You know, John is, is actually pretty normal of a guy, I think. Yeah, for those who don't know John Smith, once you start um, listening to the podcast or you start watching some of the footage, uh, once you start looking at the case, John Smith is a, uh, somebody who's very active online and, and he's a madman. And he is so passionate about pretty much everything that he does. And when, it, when we first started doing this, I, I personally thought John Smith was, was like Alden from the, from the video. I thought, you know, I don't want anything to do with this guy. And one day he, he, he sent us a, a message and he was like, dude, stop shitting on New Hampshire. He's, he's like, I'm from New Hampshire. So we got excited. We're like, oh my God, he's listening. Because he's one of those characters that we wanted to talk to. And then once we started talking to him, Tim and I, to this day, like when we go up and we see him, I'm like, I can't believe that I thought you were like this, this crazy person. I mean, he kind of is crazy, but... He's like the good crazy. Yeah, he's like not a, crazy in a dangerous way or no, anything like no. that. He's fun crazy, actually. And, and, he, and if, 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 he, if he likes you, you're on his good side. It, 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 there's no other person that I would rather have like next to me up in New Hampshire with a gun on his side. I am going to apologize because I've never heard the podcast, but I have read... Get out. Um, I'm sorry, but I have read the book. And um, one thing I was really struck by was sort of the reluctance of the family and sort of the encouragement of the friends to sort of help with just you know, talking to James. Have the family or friends been any more involved in like your documentary or do you know if they're involved in the show at all? Like with 
talking to anyone? Yeah, the, the Murray family, uh, they are involved in the TV show, and uh, that was one of the things that made us really excited. Um, and, I, and I think it's probably, it probably stands right now as the best evidence that I can point to that the Murray family doesn't know what happened to Mora because they had to sign something that said if they find out that the Murrays were hiding something or knew more, like they were going to be exposed for it. And I don't think the Murrays know where or exactly what happened to Mora, but I do firmly believe that Fred uh, knows more than he's, he's shared with police and shared publicly. And to chime in real quick on that, people react differently and none of us have been through what the family has been through up here. None of us have, we're not the father of, of a missing young woman. And uh, I think we gotta wrap this up, but there, we do work with the Maitland family and we, Brianna Maitland, look into her very similar circumstances that she was missing. And it's the opposite of the way uh, the Murray family is. They, the friends come out, the family comes out, the father talks to us. You just don't know. You don't know how grief and how shock and old school mentalities contribute to how one behaves in a situation like that. If you, if you want to ask any more questions or talk to us, we could probably hang out uh, outside the doors here, uh, but I think they got to clear the space for uh, F. Lee Bailey. Ooh, Fleeb. F. Lee Bailey. Tell them to wait. Thank, Thank you, you guys so much for Thank coming you out. Very much.